We want the, uh, uh, people to, uh, to, to uh, give us chance to be a progress, to, to uh, take our uh, country's uh, country. Welcome to episode 23 of the Hype Podcast. Um, first, I'd like to apologize for the very long uh, break. I'm currently in the US on an undergraduate uh, exchange uh, uh, program. Hence the, the fancy equipment and everything is free, by the way. Um, and with that out of the way, um, the podcast has finally uh, resumed with an episode each week. And today's guest is Dr. Elizabeth uh, Nugent. Um, she teaches politics at Princeton University and her book, her first book, uh, After Oppression, How Polarization Derails Democratic Transition, which we'll be discussing today, um, presents various um, various arguments through which one could better understand how polarization affects opposition groups at times of transition, uh, mainly in, in Tunisia and Egypt. But that theory could be applied elsewhere as well, as we will be uh, talking about shortly. Um, and her book draws on hunt hundreds of hours of uh, interviews uh, and data and so forth. And um, yeah, also besides the argument, the, the book um, pushed forward, uh, Nugent also documents repression and polarization among uh, opposition in Egypt and Tunisia throughout time. Um, the book is also, it's an award-winning book. It won, it won the uh, Robert uh, Dahl American Political Science Association Award. And yeah, so welcome. So good to have you finally on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm, um, I've really enjoyed listening to the previous episodes. Yeah, I'm glad you did. Uh, yeah, and before get, getting into it, um, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Sean Lee, uh, professor at the American University in Cairo. He's the one that actually suggested I, I read your book uh, a couple of months ago. And um, yeah, so to begin with, um, how about you define some of the terms you use extensive, extensively throughout the book so that like listeners uh, that don't necessarily have a political background could um, be on the same page with us. So what exactly do you mean by polarization in that context? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so polarization, it's one of these terms that gets thrown around. I think, you know, if you listen to the news in any country, everybody is polarized all the time. Um, the way that I define it is um, kind of on these two different axes. So there's preference polarization and affective polarization. Preference pol polarization is, um, you know, differences in opinions, basically the extent to which groups disagree. Um, and affective polarization is much more of a, a feeling type thing. So the extent to which you dislike other groups. Um, you know, in the book, I treat them kind of as being on the same scale or, or working on the same axis, working in the same direction. Um, so, you know, in Egypt, we have groups that both dislike each other and disagree with each other. While in Tunisia, we have groups that feel more warmly towards each other and agree more. Um, there's been some interesting research recently coming out of the American context, looking at basically, you know, does affective polarization drive preference polarization or the other way around? Um, and I think it's still somewhat inconclusive, right? Both of these things clearly matter. Um, it's hard to agree with somebody that you dislike, and it's hard to um, overcome either one of those things, right, in, in trying to cooperate. And cooperation is really the, you know, the center of, of democratic politics. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I the way I treat them in the book, they work together and in the same direction. Um, but I think empirically, the question still remains, like, how exactly are they related in different contexts? 
Yeah. And let's talk about your book. Like how did the process start? Um, we were talking, we touched on that briefly before I started recording that that's your, was your PhD uh, thesis. And so can you walk us, walk me through the, the journey of how that came about and how the argument was, like how you adjusted the argument as you went on, as you did more research? How was that like? Yeah, no, and absolutely. I, I, I very much believe in research as like an iterative process. So you go in with certain ideas and they're often very wrong and then you update them. Um, so I started my PhD in 2011. Um, I had a, a desk job. I watched all of the uprisings happen from my desk. I did very little work during January 2011. Um, and started, you know, September 2011, I was really interested in, or I was excited, I guess, rather than writing about authoritarianism, I thought I was going to be writing about, you know, democratization, and it was exciting. Um, by the time I started my fieldwork in the American PhD system, the coursework takes two years. Um, it was the summer of 2013, I was in Cairo, um, starting to be interested in, in perhaps looking at, you know, what it is that Islamist rule under the Brotherhood entailed. Um, I was actually running a survey with a prof two professors of mine, um, and the survey firm kept being like, we need to finish this before the end of June, because there are these protests planned. They're going to be, they could potentially be a big deal, and they might disrupt our um, data collection process. So we sped up the data collection process. Um, I also, you know, I think at, at different points, I was interested perhaps in Tomato as a group. Um, I spent a lot of time downtown doing interviews, whatnot. Um, so I would say, you know, the, the course of events in Egypt really dictated what I was interested in studying. Um, so yeah, by the end of the summer, you know, the question of democratization was not really on the table anymore. Um, Islamist rule was kind of off the table. Um, and as a result also, you know, it, because of the way that insurance works and um, the American relationship with Egypt, as soon as the coup happened, I had to leave the country um, and I wasn't really permitted to go back um, over the next year as kind of things worked itself out. Um, so I ended up in Tunisia to start my field work for my PhD in 2014. And, you know, I, I spent time at AUC a long time ago um, as a study abroad student. I went back after college uh, to do the CASA program. Um, for me, Egypt has informed a lot of how I see the rest of the Middle East, for better and for worse. <laughs> Sometimes people correct me to be like, that's just how it is in Egypt. It's not how it is everywhere. But um, in particular, when I started my fieldwork in Tunisia, I was struck at how differently religious or not religious islamist and secular or non-islamist politicians spoke about each other um before kind of anything else emerged that to me was just striking um you know not that you had open hostility between the brotherhood and other politicians all the time but in tunisia you know people had each other's phone numbers they were willing to like pick up the phone and introduce me to other folks. Um, you know, when we finished an interview, they talked about some, I mean, some things that didn't even end up in the book, these really personal exchanges they had over children, over their families. Um, and so it just felt like there was a kernel of something there that, you know, whatever made that different was, was kind of the, the first nugget of, okay, there's something here. Um, 
And then I'm trying to think. It was like after about six months in Tunisia that I I feel like I kind of hit my stride with thinking through what was happening. And it really, you know, came down to these shared spaces. Um, so shared prison cells, um, shared exile spaces that were really important for forming whatever it was, you know, that was driving Tunisian uh, politicians to have much better relationships. And that kind of evolved from there. Um, my supervisor, Amani Jamal, had, you know, pushed me into thinking through some of the collective memory and trauma literature. And, and from there, you know, I started reading more political psychology um, and some of these basic processes of like shared trauma just emerged to me as being like very important. Um, just, you know, they kind of mapped onto some of the stories that I had been hearing um, in ways that made me think there's some kind of universal process going on here that, that seems to be important for why these, you know, mostly men can't get along after 2011. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> how was um, like, how was the repression different in both contexts in the Egyptian context and the, in the Tunisian context? Yeah. So the, in both cases, I mean, Ben Ali's Tunisia was extremely repressive, um, which I think for outside observers, that was somewhat surprising to learn more um, about that after 2011. The way that I categorized the two cases, um, Ben Ali's Tunisia and even under Bourguiba as well, um, was a widespread repressive regime. What I mean by that is that anyone who was mobilized as opposition was targeted by the state. Um, when I'm talking about repression, it's uh, you know punitive actions from the state because of political opposition. Um, so arrests, you know, all the terrible things, uh, exile, um, you know, economic punishment, all this kind of stuff. Um, so in Tunisia, you know, you have multiple groups. Literally all the groups, even the loyal opposition, right, uh, can face uh, arrest at different points. Um, they're often punished, you know, if they kind of fall out of line. In Egypt, you had a very different situation. And depending on the time period we're talking about, um, there's often different victims. I term it a targeted repressive regime where some groups are being co-opted, some people and some groups are are being repressed. So under Mubarak, you know, you have, um, and I've gotten some pushback on this, um, but I, I think it is a fair assessment that the Brotherhood, you know, um, was most repressed uh, and I guess most strongly repressed in terms of the use of military tribunals, um, you know, just the various ways that the regime would constantly, you know, keep them in check. Um, and then, you know, as opposed to the repressed groups, you have the co-opted groups um, who don't fare quite as well, you know, after 2011 in terms of, you know, uh, the electoral results. But they were essentially, you know, permitted to run their parties, contest elections, win very, very small percentages of these elections. But um, they weren't being jailed. They weren't being sanctioned in any way. Yeah. And also, I think it's worthy to... to bring this up is that um, torture as well in the Egyptian context, it was um, being utilized completely differently, whereas non-Islamists weren't really subject to that harsh of torture, maybe some electrocution, some uh, uh, light stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, it's terrible. Um, yeah. I think for me, what was really striking and what's been striking in general is, um, it, you know, Tunisia had a not a perfect one, but they had um, a national reconciliation process. And in doing that, they documented the kinds of abuse that the regime, you know, uh, 
put on its opposition and normal citizens and the wives of opposition. You know, it's one of the interviews I did um, with a member of the the transitional justice uh, committee said like, you know, essentially every family in Tunisia had an experience, whether it was, you know, themselves or a brother or a father, you know, every nuclear family had some experience of repression, arrest, torture with the state under Ben Ali, which is a striking, you know, characteristic of a political regime. Um, in Egypt, the treatment was very different, right? Depending on which group you were in, um, which prison you were in. Um, and, oh, and yeah, I should note, I think I didn't mention this before, it, you know, the, the victims of the previous uh, regimes in Egypt can switch, right? So the Brotherhood got it worse under Nasser, at least at the beginning. Under Sadat, you have you know, kind of a reprieve for the Brotherhood and the left gets it quite badly and then it switches back again to Mubarak. So, um, you know, depending on the time period, there are different victims of the worst of the Egyptian state, um, but it's always this divided, Ellen Less called it the divided structure of contestation, right? Where some groups are in, some groups are out. Um, and what I find is that that's extremely important for political polarization through political identity by creating, you know, these very different narratives of repression. Yeah, definitely. And also before we started recording, I, I brought up briefly the um, Dr. Tart Masoud's argument of empirical pluralism, mm -hmm. um, which he, um, the term basically means pluralism and how he measured that he looked at both founding elections in, uh, in Tunisia and in Egypt. Um, so in Tunisia, it was the Constituent Assembly, and the Islamists won 41%, whereas in Egypt, it was Parliament, and the Islamists uh, won 71%. And he basically argued that um, the non-Islamists basically went knocking on the, the military barracks uh, door to call on them to, to intervene, um, because there basically wasn't pluralism, and so the Islamists found their non-Islamist uh, colleagues... Uh, basically insignificant like why would they even cooperate with them if they're uh, electorally insignificant and so forth um but i think his argument is is very hard it only looks at elections and it doesn't really take into account um the um, like the long periods of repression and the the ways in which opposition groups were repressed uh, as you do in your book um yeah, and I, I think that's a great, I think it's an important component of understanding what happened in these extremely important cases. But I think, you know, there is a scenario in which 70 plus percent of a parliament were Islamist, right, where secular or non-Islamist organizations wouldn't be afraid of, well, we can imagine, right, a situation in which um, a parliament that's dominated by one group right? The other groups are not afraid of the outcome because they have similar preferences. Maybe they have these informal relationships where, you know, when one group isn't in power, they can still count on the other side to, you know, abide by the rules, like play within the bounds that everyone has established. Um, so I think Tarek's argument, you know, is absolutely important, right? These, these percentages were interesting. Um, but it also kind of assumes that like the Nord party and the brotherhood were willing to work together in ways that I don't think we fully saw um, as things kind of played out over time. Um, and I think it misses the point of, you know, the reason why people fear the other party being in power is because of these dynamics, right? Because of this polarization, because of this identity, you know, 
to the extent that you disagree and dislike the people in charge, that's why those percentages matter. Yeah. And also, uh, like, I think his argument makes sense, but at the same time, I don't think it's it's just numbers because the like the parliamentary elections we had in Egypt, um, the first one we had following the revolution, that was during the Mohammed Mahmoud clashes, and that was like almost a second wave of the uh, the Egyptian revolution. And right. so basically, revolutionaries were being killed; they were being they were having their bodies thrown in trash, basically in downtown Cairo. Right. Meanwhile, the Islamists and other parties were were having elections, so I think right. that really must be taken into account when it comes to that. Yeah, and I think in addition to that, um, the I don't fully know how this would completely compensate for some of these outcomes, but the difference in like the representation at the electoral level, like is it first past the post or is it winner takes all? You know, these different approaches that you know you look at public opinion in Egypt and Tunisia, and it wasn't so different in 2011 in ways that suggest you know the electoral system might have distorted some of this. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's important to, to note that, um, but there's a lot of dynamics going on. And, you know, I don't, yeah, uh, maybe I'll just leave it there. Yeah. And um, I don't think we've we've made it uh, clear that your argument that basically widespread repression resulted in uh, oppositions being united and targeted repression, repression uh, resulted in, in both basically not... Um, getting along really um, yeah i can i can lay it out a little bit yeah, yeah so yeah, my argument is um that the nature of repression matters for whether you get high levels of political polarization or low levels right so more agreement um so the argument is repression shapes political identities which then shape political polarization that's you know a pretty established finding in the the idea that political identities uh, shape polarization as an established finding. It it really draws on political psych notions of of how identity informs behavior. Um, but I think I'm adding this idea that repression shapes these identities in three different mechanisms. The one that I think is the most important is the psychological mechanism, right? Where you learn information about who is in your group and who is out, right? So a concrete example of that is in Tunisia, you know, when you have multiple groups being repressed, you're sharing cells, you're sharing exile space in, in France together, right? You learn that all of these people are part of the opposition and that becomes a more salient and important identity with implications for polarization, right? You identify more with these groups, more likely to agree, more likely to like them too, right? You know, be more likely to sit down at a table with them and at least have a discussion. Um, in a place like Egypt, where you have targeted repression, it creates, you know, very hard borders between these identities. It, um, for a group like the Brotherhood, uh, and Khalil Anani has talked quite a bit about this in, in his work, um, targeted repression against the group, you know, not only shifted the way they thought about themselves, but also their organizational structure became very closed in, very defensive. Um, and, you know, it, it increasingly made them less social in lots of different aspects with the other parts of the opposition. And that in turn increases political polarization, right? These, these groups don't identify with each other. Um, in turn, they don't agree and they dislike each other as well. And, you know, uh, the last part of the book kind of takes from 2011 on, um, starts to talk through kind of these really, really difficult moments, right? I mean, uh, 
for, for a new project looking at uh, Mark Beisinger, who's a professor at Princeton, has this really great new data set on revolutionary situations. So when you get mobilization, that could cause a change, right? He looks both at successful revolutionary moments and unsuccessful ones. Um, and it's very rare, right, to have successful revolutionary moments that actually result in regime change. Um, like these are very difficult moments. And to almost think of, you know, 2011 as a moment of potentially, you know, new founding mothers and fathers of a country, right? Like how do they make these decisions? They have to cooperate. What helps them cooperate and what doesn't? Um, that I think is is kind of the kernel that I hope is, in, you know, that people will think about. Um, yeah, it also looks like the the S-man, uh, Trump's the favorite dictator. He hasn't yet uh, come across your work because <laughs> he's not yeah. really in that. Uh... <laughs> right. um, yeah, so you also applied your um, your theory of uh, polarization and repression and how that affects um, transition um, to various countries such as Algeria and um, Indonesia. So could you maybe elaborate on that further? Yeah, and I should say these are like not my <laughs> my cases of expertise, but the... The Indonesian case is interesting because it has um, Tunisia's levels of polarization and Egypt's military, right? So one of the big critiques is like uh, that I've gotten a number of times over the last, at this point, you know, 10 years that I've been presenting this work is, was the Egyptian military ever going to let any civilian government ever happen, right? There's some kind of assumption, right? That the military was always going to step in and do what it did. Um, but in the case of Indonesia, right, you have um, low levels of polarization and you don't have the military step in. So there's something important there about civilian polarization that allows the military to, as you were mentioning before, right, you can kind of siphon off your civilian partners because they're polarized. Um, I'm currently very, very early in a paper on looking at this dynamic. So the level of polarization among groups and the onset of coup. Because um, I think there's something really important about there being a civilian partner that can be picked off, right? So something about polarization that creates a wedge that the military can kind of stick its foot into. Um, yeah, so so I think Indonesia is a helpful case for thinking about Egypt. You know, it wasn't, I don't think it was inevitable that the military did what it did. Um, so. Yeah. And before we um, wrap up talking about your book and move on to other, uh, other things, um, could you maybe like briefly present what like what does your book add to the uh, literature on the Egyptian and Tunisian revolutions in particular and polarization in oppressive contexts in, in general, like very broadly? Yeah, so you're putting me on the spot. Tell <laughs> <Like, laughs> yourself. Um, no, I mean, I think for me what, you know, these are two cases that I think are extremely important and the work that's been done on them over the last decade, you know, it's exciting as a political scientist to see these cases that are so important be incorporated into theorization of democratic transition or lack thereof. Um, so I think what I'm adding is, is something regarding the micro foundations, right? The, the individuals who are charged with navigating these really difficult moments. Um, I think I'm thinking about repression a bit differently. It's often thought of as a structural constraint, um, you know, it's something that's imposed on parties and then they, you know, rationally and logically update their strategy. That's 
not how people experience it, right? You know, torture, exile, these kinds of things create these really strong, lasting psychological and physical traumas in ways that, you know, they're clearly important to politics, but not in the ways that we had necessarily thought about as, you know, American political scientists prior to this. Um, one thing I'll add, um, you didn't necessarily ask about this, but one thing I've been thinking about is in the last couple of years in Tunisia, whether my argument is wrong, right? Because we've seen the resurgence of authoritarianism under an outsider. Um, and one thing I've been struck by is that, well, two things. First, the state, right, the security apparatus is still doing its widespread repressive thing, right? Even though it's now had two disjunctures, it still operates really similarly, right? Like in the last couple of weeks, last year, I guess, really, um, the kinds of people that are being arrested are from across the political spectrum. Um, and it's interesting to see that, right? Even with the revolution, even with, you know, Saeed coming into power, it's still kind of operating the same way it did under Bourguiba. Like these institutional path dependencies are really strong. Um, and, you know, security sector reform didn't happen in uh, either of these cases. Uh, it's really important for democratization to, you know, have that happen. Um, and I've also been struck by how the opposition, the, the former opposition, right, if we think about the CPR and not the, um, you know, even the PD, what was formerly the PDP, they, it's interesting, it seems like they are unwilling to splinter, right, they're still, they're anti, if we want to call it a coup, which I think we can call it a coup, um, they're anti-coup. Um, but they're also unwilling to kind of, right, they're dealing with an authoritarian actor and they're unwilling to kind of break the democratic rules to do what they might need to do to overcome him. Um, so it's, you know, it's it's a situation I didn't anticipate with the book. The book I essentially stopped writing in 2018. Um, but it's interesting to think about, you know, how, especially with the addition of an outsider, right? This is not necessarily a member of the old regime. Um, referring to Saeed, right? The outsider. Yeah, Saeed. Yeah, he's, he's, you know, I mean, he was educated under the old regime. He was, um, you know, a law professor in some ways. I've read, read some interesting commentary that his understanding of the law might be very much informed by that education. But he's not, you know, he wasn't part of the ruling party. He wasn't, um, you know, a former minister. The addition of this outsider who's unwilling to play by any of the rules of the game it's interesting to see the Tunisian opposition sticking together, but possibly like to their own detriment, right? Um, that they're unwilling to kind of maybe do the undemocratic thing that would need to be necessary to to overcome what he's uh, imposing. But um, yeah, it's kind of a sad situation. Yeah, but I, I also don't think it's it's that sad because it, it like maybe politically it kind of yeah it's backsliding. We're already backslided, um, but I don't think it's over yet. No, I don't either. And I think if the government continues, you know, the biggest issue that uh, potential transitions have is economic issues, right? So if this is the wake up call that the Tunisian system needs to actually address those things, you know, inshallah, will be a, a good thing down the road. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think for me as a political scientist, it's sad to see the quality of democracy just so precipitously decline. Um because it, you know, it's exciting to see elections. <laughs> <laughs>
I mean, as an Egyptian, I'll I'll take uh, current Tunisian repression uh, any day. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think your book is one that um, it's a must read for anyone working on democratic transition or the Arab uprisings in in particular. And even despite the argument you the arguments you present, um, you do a great job documenting repression in both countries. Um. Thank you. Yeah. So I hear you're currently working on a transnational activism project. So what's that about? Yes, I'm um, I'm in Berlin. For those on the video can maybe see some German behind me. Um, but two years ago, um, I started a project pre-pandemic um, looking at, you know, obviously listeners of this podcast will know that the current regime in Egypt, you know, has been using exile as a political strategy to... Um, try to silence some of the opposition. Obviously they use harsher tactics as well, but um, Egypt is kind of in a state, and and a lot of the Arab countries that experienced uprisings have started to use exile and like forced migration as a strategy to deal with the disruption that 2011 caused in a lot of these countries. Um, so I uh, am here in Berlin um, starting research on Egyptian activists, um, surprisingly not Syrian, activist, which is what people assume I will be working on in Berlin, but there's um, a robust, you know, group of uh, activists from lots of different Arab countries um, in exile here. Um, And what I'm trying to do, you know, I think my shtick as a political scientist is um, a focus on lived experience, how that affects people's political behavior, um, and also trying to think through what repression does at the individual level. Um, Again, you know, I I mentioned this before, but quite a bit of the political science literature thinks about it in this very rational way. And when you experience it yourself, uh, when you hear other people talk about it, it's not, that's not really how I would conceptualize it, right? It's traumatic, it changes your life, it changes your body, it changes your psyche um, in ways that we haven't really theorized how it affects uh, political behavior. Um, so what I'm trying to do is, you know, reconceptualize exile as, um, again, not just like a structural change, uh, something that is traumatic, um, you know, has these psychological effects, and then think through how that is affecting the current the various movements in exile. Um, I think it matters for democratization at the individual level, like, you know, these experiences that people have if it takes them out of politics, that's removing potential leaders, potential strategists. Um, so I'm interested in how, you know, individuals become resilient is the word that um, medical doctors use. You know, how is it that you overcome these traumatic experiences, not just defeated revolution, right, in the case of Egypt, but also the forced migration out of out of Egypt for a lot of these folks. Um, like how do you overcome or make sense of those things in ways that render it politically motivating? Um, so it's still somewhat new. Um, it's been uh, delayed for two years. I was actually in Berlin in March, 2022. And I remember I was talking with, or sorry, in March, uh, 2020. And I was talking with my husband. And I was like, do you think they'll close the borders? Like, should I come home? And he was like, absolutely not. So, you know, it's been uh, two years delayed, but um what I'm hoping to do is similar to, in a lot of ways, you know, uh, the first book, I'm interested in do- documenting the stories of activists who are in exile. Um, I'm interested in making sense of it in, at a collective level. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the way that my research 
develops is really driven by frankly Egyptian politics <laughs> and what's going on and I've just been struck over the last you know really since 2014 watching friends and contacts um just grapple you know with the personal fallout um of what happened right having to move the effects of these things on their bodies and their mental health and their relationships their families um you know, I think again, you know, uh, listeners in this podcast won't be surprised by that, but it hasn't really been incorporated into a political science theory of why it matters, not only for the individual, because clearly that is important, but how that matters for politics. Um, and, you know, if there's ever democratization in these contexts, again, you know, who's available, what kind of ideas are available. Um, yeah, that it, it's going to set the political stage for future change. Yeah, I mean, it sounds really interesting. I look forward to seeing the work you you produce. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. And also, when you spoke about repression and how it, it shapes one's identity, um, I think that's something I kind of relate to, uh, especially when I met Egyptians here or people that um, that are basically American. They've been born here. They don't speak Arabic really, um, but they look Egyptian. <laughs> I probably shouldn't share this here. <laughs> anyway, um, so you I know I edited like, it out, um, right? <laughs> So I find a hard time really like how can you be Egyptian when you you have an American passport, you've lived here your whole life, you've you've gotten um, a Western education, you've got a good education, you've been um free politically, uh socially and so forth. Um so it, it also led me to reach a conclusion that it's kind of being Egyptian in my in my head um is linked with being repressed politically. So when you're not repressed, I don't think you are Egyptian. I mean, not really? not in that lit, not in the literal sense, but like the the general idea. Yeah, and I think an interesting, you know, component of that has been among exiles right now. Um, well, I, I, how do I say this? I think there's also a sense among people who are exiled and who are in the diaspora of like almost a survivor's guilt that they got out. And that's like another component too, um, to this idea of like, is experiencing repression, is escaping repression, like how does that relate to Egyptian political identities right now? Um, I think you're right, you know, those who grew up in the diaspora, they have a very different notion, right, of what it means to be Egyptian. It's it's something, um, it's kind of funny here, you know, um, Americans love to say like, oh, I am, you know, my background, I'm Italian and Irish American, right? But my relatives came over like five generations ago. <laughs> and I think Europeans are always like, what do you mean you're Irish? You know, you're you're not Irish. You're not Irish anything. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, I think there's some really interesting political studies of how, you know, something like a an identity like Italian American becomes a politically relevant thing for people, but it's completely disconnected from Italy. Right. Um, in the Irish case, there's actually more of a connection. Not 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 with me, but um, at different moments in time. Right. There was more of an affiliation, you know, with certain causes in Ireland. But yeah, it's um, I think diasporic communities and identities are just unbelievably fascinating. And this moment. Right. I mean, it's kind of redefining lots of different aspects of Egyptian politics and Egyptian identity, 
What's interesting about Germany is that there's a somewhat older or, or longer standing um, Egyptian community. Uh, Germany had, after World War II, you know, they, they invited a number of Turkish workers in, and as a result, they've had a, a broader Muslim and Arab population, kind of this, you know, chain migration type stuff. Um, so it's interesting, you know, in New York, I was also doing some interviews. There's also a longer standing Egyptian community in New York City that has a very different relationship to Egypt, um, very different relationship to politics, very different political preferences and affiliations as a result. Um, and it's, in, you know, as a social scientist, it's interesting to see these groups interacting. And I know, I'm sure it is frustrating, you know, to be in the, that discussion sometimes. Definitely. Um, and do you have any uh, closing uh, remarks? I don't know. Um, <laughs> if you know anyone in Germany, <laughs> tell them to email me. <laughs> I would love to talk to them. Um, no, I mean, I think um, one thing I've been really, I guess, proud of with this work is, you know, Egypt is not a democracy. It's maybe had a couple of months where things were yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a couple of months of like competitive elections and civilian rule. But I'm I'm happy that it is in conversation and, and you know Tunisia as well. I'm happy that these countries are kind of getting their fair share of the democratization debate and theorizing, right? Um, Middle Eastern cases have often been left out of democratic transition discussions because of the lack of democratization. But I think understanding why these cases have been unable to democratize is really important, right? It's not just, um, you know, I, I think understanding some of the internal dynamics that make it really difficult for these cases to overcome um, the legacies, right, is important. And I think, you know, one of the takeaways that I hope comes across in the book is that I think a, a real transitional justice reckoning is a way for countries to overcome these things, but it, it's hard, right? If you're highly polarized to admit that a, another group was highly repressed, um, to acknowledge that, I mean, that's very difficult, but I think it's necessary for overcoming some of these legacies of, of targeted repression. Yeah, but what do you mean by there is, um... There's a democratization debate uh, in Egypt and Tunisia. And, and I'm, I'm more interested in, in Egypt, obviously, but do you mean like in, in academic context or in. Yeah. In so, you know, in uh, political science tends to update its theories. And here I'm, I guess I'm talking about Western political science, um, you know, American and European, right? The last major debates that were had about broad scale democratization were with the third waves of democratization. Um, so former communist countries in Latin America, and the theories that emerged were very specific to the conditions of those democrat democratization processes or you know lack thereof. Um, and I, one thing that was frustrating to me in reading that was that you know even though the Middle East is not democratized in a large part, right? There are specific contexts, um, specific structural variables that aren't being accounted for, right? I think this repression mechanism is happening elsewhere, but it wasn't the key aspect that was focused on in some of these democracy debates within the academy, you know, in the early 1990s, you know, 2000s about some of these things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think for me, having Middle Eastern countries 
even with the lack of meaningful democratization included in this discussion, help us better theorize, like, what are the things that matter for a successful democratic transition? Um, in my dissertation, it didn't end up in the book. Um, I looked at some of the former post-communist countries, um, the extent to which there was a widespread versus a targeted repressive regime, um, and then looked at, um, at, you know, levels of polarization among uh, different parties. And it it seemed to, it's obviously not the whole story, but it seemed to be an important component that was missing, right? So places where more of the groups were repressed, you ended up with uh, less polarization. Um, and at least initially, right, during those hard moments of democratization, you end up with better outcomes, right? More agreements, um, better constitutions that have more, um, you know, participation from multiple sides. So I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think what is important about including the Middle East is that there's a very specific set of structures, institutions that often don't get theorized um, elsewhere in political science. Definitely. And um, <clears throat> do you think, uh, what do you think targeted uh, targeted repression in Egypt is ultimately going to lead to? Well, it's interesting. I... A widespread repression. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I think what's been interesting in Egypt is that even though, you know, from, I mean, even before 1952, but since 1952, it's been a, I think we can categorize it as a targeted repressive regime, although there are moments, right, you know, Nasser comes to power, Sadat comes to power. Often you have regimes that kind of get everybody uh, all at once. Um, the Sisi regime, I think, is doing something different, you know. I mean, I, I do think the Brotherhood still got it the worst and first, but the regime has turned its attention to basically any opposition at this point, right? Um, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post um, when Morsi died about how I was, a, you know, I, I think the fact that repression has changed meant that more people were willing to say, like, you know, poor Morsi, this is not how the only democratically elected president, you know, should go. Um, I think the increasingly widespread repression in Egypt has created created some conditions where we might see groups speaking differently about each other. Um, I also think the aftermath of the coup in 2013 opened a lot of people's eyes to what it means, right, to have been the target of oppression. Um, like, I think the maybe only positive uh, aspect of how repressive the CC regime is, is that it's in, in treating everyone to kind of the same treatment, right? It's potentially creating conditions, right, where people think about each other as fellow victims, part of a broader opposition. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful that if there is any positive effect of, of kind of the terrible treatment that he has subjected opposition to, that it would be this. Um, I am constantly struck by the way that, you know, non-Islamists talk about Rabah. Um, I, I think, or, you know, I, I don't want to <laughs> offend anybody. This is always the problem with Egyptian politics. Um, I think for many, right, whether they were Islamist um, affiliates or not, Rabat, you know, was a an eye-opening incident. Um, and that is, is a, an important component of, of people making sense of what happened. Um, 
I don't deal with it a lot in my book, but I think um, it will be, you know, central to the discussion of the second book for sure. That that for a lot of people in exile was a game changer, um, even though you know it was targeting Islamists. Uh, there was something different about it. Yeah, I think I'm now really hooked by the the book you're currently working on. <laughs> Did you start with? Yeah. Uh, with it? Sorry. Did you start working on it? Yeah. Because of the pandemic, I've had uh, two years to theorize it. <laughs> now, um, what I'm doing is basically the field work for it. Um, you know, I'm doing the interviews. I'm kind of mapping out the activist scene in Berlin. Again, if anybody, it seems like everybody, I every Egyptian I know knows somebody in Berlin. So send them my way. Um, I would love to, you know, hear their stories and talk to them. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of... It's, I'm really excited about it. This is the part of research that I love. Um, I love doing interviews, um, even in my broken Arabic. You know? <laughs> um, I like to think it's endearing sometimes. Um, it's, it's not broken, I promise. It's good. <laughs> um, no, I, this is the part that's fun for me, you know, uh, connecting with people, hearing people's stories. Um, I think they're so central to understanding politics and it's it's awesome you know to get to connect with people and you know bear witness to what they've gone through and to hopefully put it into a context where it has some meaning right uh for the trajectory of egyptian politics definitely um yeah thank you so much for coming on the podcast and thank you for sending me your book that's actually the first uh, physical book i've received uh, for the podcast. yeah I, lo I love my cover from Ganzir. Yeah, I love it too. <laughs> yeah, here's the book. Um, I'm hoping he'll do my next one too. Huh? We'll see. I'm hoping he'll do my next cover as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I hope listeners enjoyed uh, this conversation as much as, as we enjoyed uh, doing it. Not sure if you enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome.